Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast, along with Connor Glassy and Jim Callis. I'm John Manuel, talking draft. The three of us are together here in the podcast nook. And uh, as we talk draft and this, we're going to take some of your questions via Twitter that uh, you guys hit up at Connor. He's at Connor Glassy. Of course, Jim is at Jim Callis, B.A. I'm at John Manuel, B.A. We'll have an interview that will intersperse into this podcast with uh, Tim Anderson, one of the high risers in this draft, shortstop at East Central Junior College in Mississippi. And, uh, of course, we will uh, follow all this up. The podcast is part of all of our voluminous draft coverage at BaseballAmerica.com. We're all working on the BA 500 right now. Uh, Some of us are working slowly, more slowly than others are, at the BA 500. But, uh, guys, I thought that a good way to start this off is, you know, kind of take people a little bit inside of our process because, uh, especially while Connor has seen a lot of these players, and I've seen some of them on via college and on TV, and Jim, I'm sure you've seen some of these guys on TV, uh, since college baseball is more on TV these days than it has been in the past, uh, most of what we're doing here is we're relying on uh, reporting skills. We're not scouting these players. We're reporting on these players, and we're reporting on these players by talking to the coaches and scouts who see them the most. And uh, I, I guess I would say that, Jim, maybe the most typical way that most of my scout calls have started this year has been a small talk to catch back up with these guys that we talked to in the past or you see them at a game. And usually that small talk involves how bad the weather has been for them this year and how much the players suck. <laughs> that seems to be – once you get going, they, they talk about players and, and good players and players they like. But it feels like the general sentiment this year has been, boy, the weather has been bad and the talent is down. Is that how the guys have been in your region or – it does seem like you you have one of the better regions in the Midwest, especially the upper Midwest. Um, it's like it's up relative to past seasons. Uh, that's how my calls have started. Have a lot of your calls started that way? Yeah, yeah. The, the weather definitely has been about as bad as it can be up here, both in terms of cold and rain. And so definitely have heard that. You know, I've got most of the Midwest, and it kind of runs hot and cold, like. Uh, you know, Indiana has got some high end guys. I don't think a ton of depth. Kentucky is very deep. Uh, one of my states, Minnesota. It's a very. You know, there's five pretty interesting guys in the state of Minnesota this year, so Minnesota's good. And then I've got some states like Illinois. You know, it's usually a top, you know, ten state or so in terms of producing talent. Illinois is way down this year. You know, Texas is my big state always. Texas is down this year. You know, Oklahoma actually. Oklahoma is very good. You know, I wouldn't say they've got a Dylan Bundy or an Archie Bradley, although Jonathan Gray could be the number one overall pick in the draft. You know, so I guess he's with that caliber, but, uh, but it's very, very deep, and, and there might be something like, you know, I don't know, 10, 10 or more Oklahomans going in the first, you know, first three or four rounds. I'll call them Oklahomans. I don't think Sicknarf Loopstock is an Oklahoman, but he, he's in Oklahoma. He counts as an Oklahoman. Uh, I've got him more six to ten. Okay. Um, but it's, Oklahoma is a pretty impressive, uh, collection, and then you have a bunch of upper level guys, and there's also depth throughout the state, too. I, I could probably come up with, in fact, when I was, you know, we're still finalizing our top 500, you know, I, I want to say I might have had a dozen Oklahomans on the top 250, and there might be 10 or so on on the back half of the 500. I, I might be writing up 20 or 25 players from Oklahoma. Five-star state for Oklahoma this year. Connor, what's the sense been out on the west or maybe in Puerto Rico, Canada? You, have a, you span the globe. I do. <laughs> Geographically, you've got, a, you've got a ton of uh, area to cover, but has it been that kind of sentiment? Are, are scouts down on... This year's talent. I mean, I think Jim, you, didn't you call it like a forty or a forty-five draft in a on a twenty-eighty scale in an SBA? Anyway, yeah, I think yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say forty or forty-five, depending on how 
generous or, or strict you want to be with it. It's, I mean, to me, the draft, I mean, somebody asked me today where I thought the draft was deep. I was actually talking to Brian Smith, our, our Astros correspondent. He's like, you know, what would be the three or four areas of this draft you, you would say are deep? And I was like, well, I don't know if I'd say three or four areas of this draft are deep. I'll, I'll give you left-handers and I'll give you college third baseman, but nothing else in this draft strikes me as particularly deep. High school catchers. That's some good yeah. high school catchers. And I was going to say, you know, for my areas, it's, um, I think a lot of my areas can be classified as top-heavy. Because NorCal, you know, there's a lot of top-end talents there, and then, but it just kind of fizzled out after that. Same with the Northwest. You know, there's some guys who are going to go, you know, speaking of high school catchers, Reese McGuire, you know, he might be a top-ten pick in this year's draft, probably first half of the, you know, first round. Top-heavy is um, good. That's a good phrase to describe a lot of Yeah, and even Southeast. Canada has, you know, a couple guys who are going to go good, and Tyler O'Neill and, and Cal Quantrill. But a lot of my areas just don't have the, the, the depth that you're, that you're used to with those those areas. And it does feel, guys, I mean, maybe, Connor, you can speak to this too, it feels like a really volatile first round. It just doesn't feel like there's a lot of guys who are cinch first-rounders or cinch, like, top ten. I had a cross-checker just texting me today, like, you know, who you hear in the first ten picks, and it's like, after the top three guys, you know, Manaya, not Manaya, I mean, uh, Appel and Gray, and then Chris Bryant. So three college players, those guys are essentially to go in the first 10 picks, I think we think. Outside of that, everyone else seems like they're fairly volatile. I, mean, I, I think that Colin Moran's a safe bet to go in the first 10 rounds. I don't think he's a 100%. First 10 picks, so first 10 picks yeah. I'm sorry. I don't think he's a cinch. I mean, are there any other players? Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, John, I think people up. say that all the time. I, mean, I, was, I think people say that all the time, but I, I think it's just that's the nature of the draft, even in a good year. You know, this far out, you don't know who's going to go outside the top ten. I, I do think the top ten, you know, now that we're working on another mock draft, is starting to take shape. And we could probably pinpoint, I, I think right now, maybe eight players who, who I, I would think. I feel confident I can name eight guys who are going to go in the top ten. Um, that, you know, barring some kind of late injury or some kind of crazy bonus demand, will go in the top ten at this point. And, and I do think after the, after the top ten, it's volatile, but I think if we're talking, you know, two weeks before the draft, most years after the top ten, it's volatile because guys just don't know how everything's going to shake out. So I don't mean like what, what players are going to go where. I guess I mean just in terms of talent. It feels like in a good right. draft year, it feels like you know there are 15 to 20. Like you had this SBA question. I thought you were generous and saying there were 25 to 30 first-round talents. This feels like when I read our Twitter scouting reports, some of these guys in the back half of this list are not first-round lock talents, Connor. That's how I read it. Jim can get to that in a minute, but Connor, I mean, that's how I read it. It feels like there's a 10 or 15 guys who are first-round talents in any draft, and then there's like a 15 to 80 list that there's not a lot of differentiation, at least for me. That- yeah, that's the uh, the sense I've gotten too. Is that you know there's there's probably uh, I would say probably about 15 guys that, you know are surefire first rounders. But then yeah, that next tier from you know say 16 to 50. This this is the sense I got when I was putting our mid season top 50 together. Is that there is kind of that that first half of the first round guys, and then after that, you know if, if you said you know the guy we had at number 50 goes at 20 or 25, you know it wouldn't surprise you. It wouldn't you. shock you. Yeah. That's a, I guess that's, that's the way I meant to say it. That, that would have been a better way to get to that question, Jim. Do you think that's – is that a fair characterization of the class? Yeah, yeah. I thought, what I thought you were saying was, uh, was that the top ten was more unsettled than usual. And, and I, I think 
And I don't think that's the case. No, I agree. I, I do think that if you were to take, I mean, my, my, my dream that, that will never come true is I'd love to get all 30 teams after the draft to say, hey, here's what the top 100 players on our draft board look like. And I think you'd see, and I, I think, and I actually think it's true most years too, is that, you know, when you get past the first 15 picks, I, I just don't think the draft boards look much alike. And, and that, you know, some guy that Connor might think is the 16th best player in the draft if he was working for a team. John, you might think was like a bottom of the first round guy for your team. And a team I worked for might think he's more of a sandwich pick. And, and I think that's true. I think that's true most years. And it's probably more true in years where the talent's down just because you, you know, kind of eye of the beholder. But, you know, we, we've seen a lot of guys who, you know, it seems like guys are running to go off and see, you know, a guy like Devin Williams, who's a Missouri high school pitcher, who, you know, you hear, you know, chatter, oh, you know, he might go to the Cardinals at 19, and other guys think he's going in the middle of the second round. So it, it, I think there's a lot of guys, it's, you know, after you get past the first half of the first round, it's hard to get a read on. Yeah, and I guess um, maybe, that's, maybe that's the case when that, that's the indicator of, not having a, a you know a super strong draft class when there is that volatility, it does feel like. And I do the southeast, and I've I'm, I've done a little bit of more reporting into the Carolinas and Virginia than I uh, than I expected I would um, have time to do. Um, I guess in my area in the southeast, top heavy is a great word for it. I mean, Arkansas is a great top heavy uh, state. I think Vander Vanderbilt, the state of Tennessee, is a top heavy state, uh, especially the high school pitching. But it is a very good year in the state of Tennessee. But I mean, if I, if I think if I'm assessing all my states, it seems like it's about an average year in Arkansas because the college, University of Arkansas, is supplying the players and the high school ranks are not so hot. Uh, Louisiana, it's a strong year in Louisiana because LSU is good. The high schools there are pretty solid. It's a good year in Mississippi. I'd say it's a very good year in Mississippi, which is why I'm obsessed with Mississippi right now. Um, Tennessee, really good year. The rest of it, you know, Georgia's very top-heavy, Alabama, eh. And then Florida, I think there's no other way to say it. It's terrible. It's a yeah. terrible year in the state of Florida. Um, I, I'm of the opinion, and Jim, it's a, it's a, it's a down year in, in Texas, correct? Yeah, very much so. Is it a down year? What's it like in California? Well, it seems like California's North, okay. NorCal's solid. SoCal, it is, I would say it is down in SoCal. I mean, uh, you know, Phil Bickford came up and, and emerged, but, you know, there really wasn't like a – uh, dominant SoCal right-hander, right? You know, for a high school guy that you usually have before he came, and it just seems like Southern California is down a little bit. So that, when, you, a, when you look at California down, Texas down, Florida down, that, that's that's why it's a down year for the draft. Exactly. I mean, like I don't think Georgia's down, but it's certainly not up. It's probably about average, and it is really top-heavy. And, uh, and so that just to me, that's the simplest explanation. I don't, I don't think you, I'm sure there's some scientific reason if you really want to dive inside the numbers, or maybe there isn't. But I don't think it's. I think it is kind of a simple explanation that the three states that produce the most talent are are not at their best. They're not robust years um, in in those drafts. For for me, that's, that's how that's how I that's how I read it. Um, I did want to talk a little bit also, just since we're in our in our regions, about guys who uh, are more volatile. We'll start on the positive part of that. Guys who've guys who've moved up, and I think I mentioned him earlier. We're gonna and, and Connor, you interviewed him. Uh, Tim Anderson uh, is a guy who, to me, seems like he's moving up this board. I guess uh, I'm trying to figure out if he's moving up the board because people like him so much or if he's moving up the board because he's a middle infielder and there are no middle infielders, especially college middle infielders that anybody seems to like. I do think it's a mix of both. But he is an interesting guy where it sounds like he's a – I think the best case scenario for him 
is a faster version of Orlando Hudson who might have a chance to play shortstop. But the shortstop part, there's projection involved in seeing him as a shortstop. But I do think it says something, Connor, and then Jim, you can comment on this as well. I think it says something that the top college middle infielder who's going to be drafted was available in last year's draft, wasn't drafted, was available last summer in the Jayhawk League where everybody knew about him. He performed in that league. We rated him as the number two prospect in the league and should have had him number one. He could have signed as a summer free agent at that time. Uh, I understand that the thing, that the signing deadline is different and all that, but um, he was available last year and wasn't picked, and now he's going to be a first-round pick. I think that says a lot about this year's draft class. So I don't know what you thought on that. Kyle. What's, your, what's your take on Tim Anderson? As a, he's just like a pretty unique case for a yeah. Juco middle infielder to be a first-round pick. Yeah, it is it's a fascinating story for sure. Um, and, and I think you're right. I think it is a combination of both the lack of uh, positional depth at shortstop and then, but I, but I do think scouts really like him. Scouts I talked to earlier in the year before we kind of split up into our regions uh, just really like the guy. I mean, they they said he has star potential, right? Um, and I think he might, you know, Orlando Hudson. That's that's a decent comp, but I think he might have a little bit more juice than that. That's the big question. Is how mu- uh, that's the other question besides playing shortstop is how much impact power he has. I think Jim, one of the things that attracts people, scouts, to Tim Anderson, is that. Uh, he has athleticism. He was a high school basketball player at a good high school program in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, a program that has a history of winning. And I forget if it was his junior year or his senior year. I believe it was his senior year. They led them to a state championship as a point guard in basketball. So the baseball attention wasn't really there. Plus, he had knee injuries from high school basketball as a so- that basically wiped out his sophomore and junior high school baseball seasons. But he played baseball as a high school senior and decided he wanted to focus on baseball, not basketball, wound up in a junior college to do that, and has uh, really made great strides. Um, it sounds like, you know, I'm not sure where he might fall in the mock draft, but all the buzz I have on him this year is that he's going in the first round. He's not, we had him, I guess, at 34 on our top 100 when we first released that. I don't think he's lasting to 34. So, Jim, I'm not sure if you've heard that buzz on, on him in the first round or not. No, I am. I, I think he has a very good chance to go at the end of the first round. Um, you, know, you, know, you know, you have to look at the draft. You, know, you look at it in town, you also have to look at it in terms of value. And, I mean, there just aren't middle infielders in this draft. Uh, J.P. Crawford's going to go very well, you know, the high school shortstop from California. He's going to go, I think, middle of the first round. And then you got Tim Anderson and you got Oscar Mercado, who there's some questions on the bat. He's a high school shortstop from Florida. And, and then, you know, in terms of guys you're actually going to project as, as good, you know, very good chances to stay short, you know, it might be a couple more rounds. But, you know, and I think even more than that before you even get to a college guy. I mean, who's the best college shortstop? <laughs> I guess Adam Frazier Adam or Jack Reinheimer. Jack Reinheimer, that's it. That's, those guys are like fifth-round picks. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it, it, is, it is very curious how this guy fell through the cracks. I mean, I can see it in high school. You play multiple sports, track record of – of Mississippi high school players is not very good at all, but it surprises me that the guy was, you know, in junior college last year, doesn't get drafted, tears up the Jayhawk League, and nobody tries to entice him to sign at that point. And, you know, I mean, I guess good for Tim Anderson because he, he wasn't going to get a million dollars last summer, but, I mean, he's going to go with a, a seven-figure draft pick this year. No doubt. And since, we're, since we're talking about Tim Anderson right now, let's take a quick break. We're going to play this interview that Connor conducted with Tim Anderson of East Central Junior College, then Jim, Connor, and I will come back and talk more amongst ourselves. 
Okay, Tim, hey, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Is there no problem? Uh, well, yeah, just take me back to the beginning. I mean, when was it that you first started playing baseball, and what was it that, that really drew you into the game? Uh, well, I'll say, you know, when I was young, I'll say about four or five. I mean, I can literally say that I was outside my grandmother's house, and I think I threw a rock, and I bust my grandmother's window, and uh, my mom signed me up, and I've been playing ever since. So that's kind of how it all started. Okay, nice, nice. Um, yeah, I mean, we wrote that in high school you were also a, a talented basketball player. Um, how serious was basketball for you? Did you get any college interest there? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I'll tell you, my junior year, I was, I was kind of very serious about basketball, and I thought I was going to play basketball in college, and then I took back over with baseball, and kind of, it kind of took back over, I mean, because that's the sport I always loved, and I did have an offer in basketball from Itawamba, but, uh, I thought baseball was my best choice. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you, did you get any, any scouting interest? Uh, either in high school or, or last year? Um, I didn't get any in high school. Uh, last year, I didn't get much. Uh, How about in the Jayhawk League? What, what was that experience like for you? Uh, it was a fun experience. I mean, they go out and play with different guys and be around a bunch of guys that you don't know and you get to know them and tell a story about baseball. And, I mean, it was a great experience. I, mean, I really liked it. Yeah, yeah. Um, how would you say you, you grew as a player over the summer? Uh, I feel I grew a lot. I mean, as in from what I went in trying to do and as in working on everything, and I think I accomplished everything that I tried to do. And I feel I had a great season out there. And I became a better player and a better person as in being away from home and growing up a lot. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, I mean, what is what has this year been like? You know, you, you go from not being scouted in high school, not very much last year, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're really thrust into into the scouting spotlight, you know, being talked about as a potential first-rounder. What what has all that been like with all the extra hype and attention and everything that, that comes with that sort of thing? Uh, I would say it's motivating. I mean, it does motivate me. I mean, because, I mean, I, I'm trying to get to where I'm going. and I mean, getting all the attention, I mean, is a good thing, and it also motivates me because, I mean, there's a bunch of people around, and, it's performing my best and showing what I can do. I mean, so it motivates me, basically, and doesn't bother me or distract me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, your team is done playing, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. So what are you doing over the next couple of weeks be- before the draft? Uh, I'm, I'm spending time with my family right now. And, um, I want to talk to my advisor and we're going to work some things out. I do a couple of workouts and, and that's about it. Sure, sure. Do you, do you have any plans set up for draft day? Anything? You throwing a party or anything like that? Uh, no, sir. I don't. Uh, I got invited up to to New York for the first night. Uh, oh, okay. Nice, nice. Congratulations. Um, for someone who hasn't seen you play, how would you describe yourself as a player? Uh, I'll say I'm competitive. I mean, always on the win. I mean, it's not just about me. I mean, I'm a team player. Uh, I said it's going to be tough to beat me. Uh, I wouldn't give them all or anything I do. So. Yeah, yeah. What, um, what What are you still working to improve? Uh, uh, I was I was working on my backhand and ball away. 
this season. I feel like I got a lot better at that. And, and I know I'm not complete yet, but uh, one day I will. So I'm just still working on everything to be a complete player I want to be. Yeah, nice. Okay. Uh, so, you know, we've learned about Tim Anderson, the baseball player. What What do you like to do when you're not playing baseball? Oh, uh, spend time with my family. Um, you know, friends, play video games. I mean, can't really just chill. Yeah. What, what would you say is your favorite movie? Uh, 42. I like 42. Nice. Yeah, that's, that's a great one. Um, how about favorite music? Um, I give up. Mm-hmm. Anybody, anybody in particular? Uh, I do. Mean, I just listen to a bunch of different things. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time, and best of luck in the in the draft. Okay, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Jim, uh, so Tim Anderson, I don't know if I can call him my personal cheese ball because he's a first-round pick, and I've already I've already chosen one of the Magnolia State. Hunter Renfro will forever be my, my personal cheese ball in that state. But uh, kind of who are the guys on the volatility side, on the positive, who are some of the player, who's the player or maybe a couple of players in the Midwest who've really improved their stock this spring, they're not, not necessarily even as first rounders, but guys who maybe were off the radar into the first three or four rounds. Well, I mean, I guess the guy who, I mean, he was a known quantity, but now it sounds like he's going to go in the back half of the first round somewhere. One guy who immediately jumps to mind for me is Alex Gonzalez at Oral Roberts. Uh, you know, program's been very successful, but, you know, they're a mid major. Um, and he just keeps getting better and better. You know, even this spring, I mean, it, I think he came, you know, he came in from a Florida high school. He, he was a uh, well-regarded recruit, and he just seems like he's gotten better each year. You know, sometimes guys plateau at a younger age, and he hasn't. And, uh, you know, the, I think the thing with him is, without even throwing, he's not trying to throw a cutter, but his fastball has a ton of natural cut. So he's 91, 92, 94, up to 94. Uh, the ball moves all over the place. He's got a true slider. Uh, and he's got a good changeup. Um, and it just seems like more and more teams are, are on him. I mean, there, there's even some talk... And I don't think he's going to go this high. But there's even some talk that he could go as high, or the Red Sox are or at least considering him a little bit at number seven. I don't think he's going to go that high, but, you know, Alex Gonzalez might wind up going in the middle of the, the first round somewhere. He might be, you know, we, we've talked about how with the college pitchers this year, you have Gray and Appel on one level, and then Sean Maniah is a, a huge X factor right now. You know, the this, this second level is probably right now Braden Shipley and Ryan Stanek. And, and, you know, Alex Gonzalez might be the fifth college pitcher drafted, depending on how things unfold. I mean, he could be that guy. And big day for him tomorrow uh, in their conference tournament. He's going up against Stephen F. Austin State and uh, Hunter Dozier. And I think a lot of guys are going to try to, to go get a good look at both those guys. That's amazing that Alex Gonzalez has moved up kind of that much. I mean, he's, and he's, like you, like you said, the thing that stands out to me about him is that he's performed for three seasons in college. He's been a steady performer, and that – yeah, that's not something, Connor, that everybody in this draft class can say, both on the high school and the college side. The guys who were quote-unquote famous or the guys of the biggest tools, like Mercado sticks out for me in my, in my region, haven't always paired those performances or those good profiles with performance. Who have been some other, maybe some volatile guys on the way up in, in the West region or maybe in Canada or Puerto Rico? Sure. 
Well, I mean, the biggest riser for me was Braden Shipley. Uh, you know, like Tim Anderson, another guy who, if you were paying attention to Baseball America's Summer College League coverage, uh, you know, this is a guy, he was number one in the Alaska League last summer. Um, but he's really just, I mean, elevated his stock as much as anybody. Right. Coming from, you know, he we had him in a good spot coming into the year in, in our college top 100 list, but now he's getting, you know, top 10 buzz. Uh, I really like him. It sounds like he's got, you know, from the scouts I talked to, it sounds like he's got plus stuff um, and and a little bit of a mean streak, which I like. So, so that's the guy who's been the biggest riser in my area. As far as volatility, uh, I mean, that's got to be Austin Wilson, a guy who was a big-time guy coming out of high school. But, you know, there were some questions about how much he'll hit this, this spring, and then, you know, he missed a lot of the year with an injury, uh, but obviously has a lot of tools. Uh, but... But volatile just because, you know, he missed some time this year. And then I think scouts are going to have to really dig on his, his signability. You know, I mean, he's a guy who turned down a lot of money out of high school, comes from, you know, a good family financial situation. So, uh, you know, and it's seen Mark Appel turn down money and probably get more. So, you know, maybe he thinks he could do the same thing. I don't know. I don't know what the signability is for some of the Stanford guys. That's always tough. But he definitely is a guy who could go – I would say in the teens or could drop, you know, into the, the bottom part of the first round, maybe even top of the second round. That's a great point about the uh, whole Mark Appel thing. I mean, I, I guess, Jim, you had a good Ask VA lead this week about that. That probably would be good to touch on here. I mean, uh, kind of the debate between uh, at the top of the top 100, uh, top of our, of the, of the upcoming BA 500. Um, it doesn't seem like it's uh, uh, there's a strong consensus among those those two pitchers. And I guess I'm wondering, first off, did you sense, do you sense there's a strong consensus one way or the other, Gray versus Appel? And second, do you think Mark Appel, could that set some kind of precedent? for? Are there future guys who could turn down first-round money and come back as seniors, or do you think that's a pretty special case? Um, that just happened last year. That won't continue to happen uh, with, the, the, the new, with the, these new draft rules. It does feel like with the new draft rules, almost feels like it gives the senior a little bit of leverage. You're not going to get completely – because you have to have that deal in hand to use all of your bonus pool money. Right. Well, I mean, getting to your first part of the question, I, I don't think there is a consensus. And, I mean, I don't even think on our staff there's a consensus. Gray, Appel, Appel, Gray. I mean, uh, you know, you're splitting hairs. I think Appel's got a better – you know, I think Gray's stuff at its best is better than Appel's. I think Appel's got a deeper – repertoire, and he's a little more consistent with it. They both had very good seasons. Appel's obviously got a longer track record uh, of success, you know, and performing well. Um, you know, some people, you know, you know, and I quote, you know, I guys quoted at the beginning of SBA, you know, the fact that Appel didn't sign last year. You know, you, you hear, you know, and I don't know whether it's necessarily fair, but you hear, okay, you know, I'm not sure how much he really wants it or how much he wants to compete because he, he turned down $3.8 million last year. Um, you know, I think you could also turn that around and say, well, you know, maybe you look at it like Mark Appel's got great confidence in himself, and he bet on himself, right? And he's going to win big. Um, yeah, he's going to get, you know, I think at least two, two and a half million dollars more than he turned down last year when he goes one or two in this year's draft. Um, I don't, I don't think we're going to see a lot of guys doing what he did. I mean, it obviously worked out well for him. I mean, inexplicably. It worked out for Luke H. Hochaver a few years ago, um, although I don't think anybody really thought he should have been the number one pick in that draft except for the Royals when he didn't sign after his junior season in Tennessee and went to Indy Ball. Um, 
you know, Appel does have some leverage. Like, I've, you know, the Astros fans don't want to hear this, but he does have leverage in that the signing deadline doesn't apply to him. So even if you, let's say, tried to force-feed him a number, and, you know, figuring that, and, and I do agree there's, there's some, you know, I mean, I can't see Mark Appel going into next year's draft. He's got to sign this year. Uh, you know, they, I guess if anybody would, would advocate, oh, hey, we'll go to independent ball, we'll go back in the draft again next year, maybe it would be Scott Boris, and maybe it would pan out. But, but he is going to sign this year. I don't have any doubt about that, but, you know, if you tried to force feed him a number, like let's say, you know, I've had Astros fans come out, hey, why can't the Astros just tell him it's going to be $5 million and of course he'll take it. Well, yeah, you know, if the Astros drew a line of sand and said, it's five, we're taking you, and it's $5 million, and we know you're going to take it, so just, you know, nothing you can do about it. Well, what he can do about it is he can just agree, he can decide, okay, I'll sign for $5 million, but I'm going to wait until after the deadline. I'll sign September 1st, and that way you can't use any of the money you saved on me uh, to get other guys, you know, like using last year's draft example, you can't go get Lance McCullers Jr. Right. And you can't go get Rio Ruiz with my money because I'm not going to let you use my money. So there's really no benefit to drawing a line in the sand with Mark Appel as a senior and saying, okay, this is what you're going to have to take because even if you make him take less than the pick value, you aren't going to be able to use his savings if he doesn't like it. Um, so I don't think I don't think we'll see this happen too often. I just think. You know, I've had some people tell me that they think, you know, Scott Boris wanted a guy to kind of test the waters and see if a team would go over the, you know, 5%, you know, overage on the bonus pool and give up draft picks. You know, and it didn't happen last year with Appel. I just think there's a lot of risk involved when you do it. I mean, it's worked out well for Appel. And he's getting a Stanford degree. He's going to get more money. Uh, you could argue that he might have made the majors quicker had he signed a year ago. Although I don't think he's going to take too much time in the minors. But there's also, you know, a lot of risks too if it doesn't pan out for you. Know, the, the interesting thing will be, I mean, I've had people suggest to me that, you know, we have all the, these unknowns with Sean Manaya right now who came into the year's potential number one overall pick has never really looked as good this spring as he did on the Cape last summer, and then he was scratched at the last second from his start. To, I've heard from three people, uh, and I'm sure there's more, but uh, three people contacted me who were at, in normal Illinois today for a 9 a.m. game. They were playing the first game of four today at the NBC tournament when I was supposed to pitch. Threw two warm-up pitches, grabbed his hip, and he was done. And there's a mass exodus from that game, at least among the scouting community. But, I mean, guys had to be there early to see him throw, and he didn't pitch, and nobody knows where that guy's going to go. And one of the things that kind of scares teams is, you know, nobody's really sure what's going on with him physically, you know, with the, with the hip and his stuff being down. But, but the other scary thing is, you know, he's, he's advised by Scott Boris as well. And if, if Scott Boris wants to show Sean Manias some inspiration of, hey, you know, the draft didn't work out for you like you hoped as a junior when you thought you had a chance to go number one, but it can turn around for you as a senior – he can just pick up the phone and put Sean Manaya on the phone with Mark Appel. So nobody's real sure what's going on with Manaya stuff-wise, health-wise, or signability-wise. And I think, frankly, right now, he scares a lot of teams to death. That's, that's fascinating because as, as you were talking about Manaya, and we, you know, as you transitioned from, from Appel to Manaya, I thought, you're going to say that Manaya might be back in this draft next year, and it sounds like that's a, a, a definite possibility. He's kind of the volatile guy, a guy on the downside. I meant to also throw in another volatile guy on the upside who's in the northeast region that uh, Nathan Rohde does, and we only have two microphones here, so that's why Nathan's not on the podcast. Um, but it does seem like the, like Kyle Crockett of Virginia is the other really volatile guy who could go really high or uh, it could could fall. I just got a uh, there's some there's some rumblings about medical uh, on Kyle Crockett. I think mostly because. People weren't considering them this high at the draft when the year started, and now they're starting to dig a little bit more on it. So because he has performed so well, 
And then I think the other part of it is that the reason he's, uh, he performs so well is that he throws tons of strikes from a lower slot, 88-93, and a good slider. People thought he would move very quickly to the major leagues. And then he went back-to-back against North Carolina earlier in the week, and he was tremendous in the first game and just brutal in the second game. And the stuff was down, and uh, there were some scouts who were there for one, but there were some scouts who were there for both games. And if you were there for both, the second time you saw you're like, wait a minute, he's just giving up a triple to the eight-hole hitter with no home runs and this college game on a back-to-back and leaving everything up. So uh, even, he, again, there's volatility there, but I think he was a guy who was – for a week or so, it was definitely the flavor that I kept on hearing um, from the cross-checkers I was talking to as a guy who was really moving up charts, uh, as a guy you know who had who had some serious draft helium. Um, I, that almost made him kind of a personal favorite of mine. But, Connor, who are some of the guys in, the, in your region, again, West, Canada, and Puerto Rico, who kind of uh, maybe you like more than you should? Uh, irrational confidence guys is the way that uh, uh, the way Bill Simmons calls them. I guess we call them personal cheese balls. Yeah. Well, I mean, two guys – Outside of the you know the cream of the crop kind of guys, the two guys I would say that I really like the most. Uh, I'll pick one one hitter and one pitcher. The hitter I really like is Rowdy Telez. Um, you know, bigger body first baseman from Elk Grove High School in Sacramento, or Sacramento area. But I mean this this guy can really mash. I mean he's got. I think he might have the best left-handed power in the draft. Wow. Um, you know, you could I guess argue Jagilo or maybe Justin Williams, but. Uh, in addition to his power, and I mean, this is a guy who hit two balls over the scoreboard at Blair Field this yeah. spring early on, uh, but he can really hit, too. I talked to one scout who told me, you know, yeah, I saw him hit a ball about, you know, 420 feet, but the thing that really impressed me in the game I saw is that uh, he stayed on a curveball and laced it into the left center gap, and that hmm. impressed me even more than the home run he hit. Because he knew he had the power. Yeah, because the, the power is there, but he, he really yep. shows a feel for hitting, too. So that's, that's one guy, one, one of my hitters that I really like. And then one pitcher I really like is, is Cal Quantrill. Um, tried to get him an interview for the podcast as well, but had a little technical difficulty. So oh, Canada. had to run that as a, as a Q&A on, on the site today. But um, I really like him, a uh, projectable kid with a, a big league dad. Uh, a lot of experience with the Canadian Junior National Team, so he's pitched against pro competition, been in big game situations, and, and really has a feel for pitching uh, that that you know a lot of young pitchers don't have. Right. And then I think you know he has projection, so when he gets that velocity, he's going to have it all. So I, I really think he's a guy with tremendous upside. Um, you know, has the potential to be a, a front of the rotation starter in. When it's all said and done, are those four to six round guys, or kind of what's the range on those two guys in your mind? I think those guys are probably more second to third round range. Okay. Yep. Okay. So I kind of like. I guess I'm more toward the back, but I, I'm junior colleges are interesting to me. I, I don't know. They they really shouldn't be. <laughs> you know, there's too volatile. Um, but I am intrigued by this guy at Middle Georgia, the Blake Shouse. Am I getting his first name right, Jim? He's a Georgia. He's a Georgia. So. He's a Georgia signee. So I figure you know all about him. Um, he's not going to make it to Athens. So, bad news for whatever coach gets that job. Um, don't remember where we had him on our top 200. I think it was in the 200 to 250 range. But it does sound like he's a little bit more intriguing than the average bear as a junior college. He's a shortstop who closed in high school. Yeah, so he pitched, but he wasn't a starter. He's kind of lean and athletic, like 6'2", 180. But what you really hear about him is that there's velocity there. Yeah, he's touching some fours. Nobody quite knows what the velocity will be once it becomes a full-time pitcher. You know, could it go backwards? Could he pitches more? That's very possible. 
Uh, but he does have some hand speed and some arm speed, and where it really shows up is with the breaking ball. He could really spin a breaking ball, flash in a plus breaking ball, and just as like a guy who could really take off a raw, um, raw for a pitcher, pretty athletic, live frame, and I think he's just scratching the surface. And uh, there are three pitchers who are probably going to get drafted in the first ten rounds out of Georgia's uh, junior college ranks, and he should be at the head of those at the head of those ranks. And then I guess the other guy who kind of is intriguing to me again, junior college is uh, Colin Bray at Faulkner State. You know, Connor, you really turned me on to him. And let's face it, I'm interested in him because he's from Mississippi. I mean, he's a Mississippi high school kid who was a football recruit. I'm so predictable. I just can't get past the fact that, first of all, I don't understand why the top player in Mississippi's junior colleges is from Alabama and the top player in Alabama's junior colleges is from Mississippi. And Colin Bray is like an 80 runner. But I have four or five JUCO guys who are good runners um, in this draft I'm writing up. Jonathan Youngblood who edged out Tim Anderson last year as our top JUCO prospect, um, has been drafted twice. He has six extra base hits this whole year. So I'm not sure that he'll go in the 15th round like he did last year to the Pirates, probably going that say, about that same round range. Colin Bray has a few more extra base hits than that, but not a ton more. But there are athletes. It really does seem, Jim, like if you want athletes in this draft, they're at the high school level or they're at the junior college level. At the college level, the athleticism is just not there. And when you do see an athlete uh, like an Aaron Judge or Austin Wilson or Hunter Renfro, these guys are really sticking out. I, I feel like that's why Hunter Renfro is so high up these boards, because he is athletic, even though he's not an infielder athletic. He's athletic enough that you see the right-right profile, and you think he's athletic enough that he's going to hit some – he can handle velocity, he can handle breaking balls, and that he'll be a big leaguer. But, I mean, uh, it's just hard to find athleticism, I think, in this year's draft, and that's why I'm drawn to – some of these really raw athlete types. So I wasn't sure, if Jim, if you had some of the guys like that and you're in the Midwest or if there are other guys who intrigued you maybe more than the, they were even intriguing some of the scouts. Yeah, well, I mean, getting back to your, your, your first point there for a second about the athleticism, I just think if you're – the reason the athleticism is down in college is just the pro teams have been so aggressive about signing high school players and that most – you know, if you see an athletic kid – you know, like a, a real top athlete in a four-year college, it's usually because either, you know, he was unsignable, like like Austin Wilson was coming out of high school. I mean, teams were willing to pay him if he would have signed. Or, you know, there were questions about, you know, how much he'd hit or how much exposure he'd have, like a like an Aaron Judge. You know, Hunter Renfro played against, you know, real, you know bad high school competition in Mississippi. Um, you know, if you're an athlete and you've proven yourself, you know, against good competition in high school, or even if you're just an athlete, for the most part, teams are willing to pay you. And, you know, a lot of your best college prospects, I think, year in and year out, are guys, you know, like a, a Colin Moran, who, who I wouldn't call, you know, he's not a slug, but I mean, I wouldn't call Colin Moran a great athlete, but he can hit. Right. Um, you know, DJ Peterson can hit. Eric Chigailo can hit. You know, it's generally guys who've, who've proven themselves with the bat, and those college athletes are rare, and, you know, what makes Renfro, I think, rare is that he's a college athlete who people aren't worried about the bat. I mean, there's still concerns about Wilson's bat or Judge's bat. So, But getting back to, to, to my region, I guess I wouldn't necessarily call him a, a great athlete, but, you know, one guy who, who continues to fascinate me, um, you know, wasn't even drafted last year when he was eligible, is Nick Petrie in Missouri State, who is kind of, I'm not, I'm not saying he's going to be Greg Maddox, but he's essentially a college version of Greg Maddox and that his stuff is pretty average and he just cars guys up. I mean, last year he had a, 
the streak of 70-plus innings without allowing an earned run and led the nation in the ERA, and he's come back and, and, and done pretty much the same thing this year while, you know, working in the upper 80s and adding and subtracting and, you know, mixing five pitches. Uh, you know, we, we've got him taking this around an eighth-round pick, and I'll be curious to see what happens with him. And, you know, talking about raw junior college athletes, I mean, I, I do have one who jumps out at a kind of an obscure Missouri junior college, uh, Metropolitan Community College at Longview in Missouri, He's got a kid named Brandon Doolin, who's a, a six foot three, two hundred and twenty five pound left handed hitter who's, you know, not easy to see and the competition's not very good. But it's it's very promising left handed power and you know, he he's playing first base there, but guys think he runs throws well enough to play well off field and, and he's kind of a fine too and you know, he's a guy who slipped through the cracks before with this year. Yeah, that's why the athletes at the younger level it does seem like just talking to Aaron during the year on the college podcast. There are many more the athleticism is in the freshman and sophomore classes in in uh, in college. And I think I wonder if that's part of it is uh, is just the new CBA and the freshman class. At least there's some pretty decent athletes in the freshman class who who got through to college. And uh, I wonder if that's going to help college baseball. I think we all think that it will help college baseball. I don't know, John. We'll see. I was going to say, John, I don't know necessarily that it will because, I mean, the one thing that was interesting is even with the new rules last year, I went back and looked at, you know, the number of high school players on our top 200 right. uh, from one year to the next, and then pro baseball signed the same percentage of players. They did not let – they still signed, you know, and I don't remember about the numbers in front of me, but they still signed the majority of high school players on our top 200. The, the percentages were almost identical. So, uh, you know, it could, I think it's cyclical from year to year who's in what class and who, you know, who gets through sometimes. But, you know, if last year was any indication, I don't think more talent is getting to college. I think teams just had to be creative and move money around and, and still, sign, you know, found ways to sign on guys. And the bonuses are up uh, for, for really, <laughs> it just seems like for no reason, Connor, other than revenues are up, so bonuses are up. But flexibility is not there to spend. And I, and I am interested to see how teams uh, try to finagle the rules and try to use different strategies to spread their money out or maybe to concentrate their money in four or five players. I mean, I think we all kind of seem to think that you, you build drafts by having great depth, but you also need to get stars. You know, you win by drafting big league regulars, not big league extra players or having a cup of coffee kind of players. So, um but I think that we'll save that for a later podcast. Maybe an experts draft uh, podcast that goes with our our experts draft. We are going to take a couple of questions that we t- uh, solicited via Twitter, and uh, both Jim and Connor. Jim, you take it first, and then Connor follow up from Lance. Everyone knows about the first fu- the first round. How about some How about some round five plus college guys that you think can be stars? Jim, anybody who uh, not necessarily a personal favorite, a guy maybe who's a college draft pick who. Uh, maybe has a flaw or, or two, or is a maybe not a non-profile guy, so he might not go high. But who you think could be a big league regular? Let's say. Well, I think there's guys who can be big league regulars, perhaps. But I mean, if a college guy is going in around five, <laughs> you know, when you get to that part of the draft, I mean, it's it's guys who can do some things and can't do others. And if you had a college guy who's going to be a star, I think most of those guys are off the board in the first, you know, three rounds or so. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you got. You know, Miles Smith, perhaps, you know, for Lee, you know, college, you know, you could take a bunch of guys who throw hard. You know, Miles Smith, you know, Zane Evans from Georgia Tech, you know, guys who throw hard, you know, maybe they make it as, as closers, you know, in, in pro ball, you know, right. in the major league level. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at our fourth, fifth, sixth round list. Uh, I mean, you know, the position players we have in the fourth round are guys like Ty Young at Louisville and Drew Doshi at Youngstown State and 
Brandon Thomas at Georgia Tech, and, and I like all three of those guys, but I wouldn't, you know, it's hard for me to say, oh, those guys are going to be stars. Uh, uh, so I'd, I'm not trying to avoid the question, but I mean, I think if you saw a guy who had a chance to be a star, especially if he's a college player who's proven himself right. to some extent, the guy's not going to last until the fifth round. Now, there will be, there will be star. I mean, Ian Kindler was a 17th round pick, but, you know, at this point when you're lining guys up, you wouldn't be putting a star in the fifth round, and I can't think of an obvious guy who, you know, is going to fall for, you know, because he's undersized or, or whatever, who, who fits that mold. So I, I've just given a terrible answer to that question. <laughs> All right, Connor, who do you got? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if we could identify which, which players were going to be stars after the fifth round, you know. We'd, we'd be scouting we'd, directors. Yeah, exactly. But the guy from my region who uh, does stand out for me with, with a chance to be that kind of guy is Jacob Hanneman, the outfielder at BYU. Um, super athletic guy, you know, came to BYU as a football player and a baseball player and then went on a two-year church mission. But now he's back, and he's leading their team in hitting after taking two years off from the game. So this is a guy that does have tools and does excite scouts. Um, but then again, he's already 22. So, you know, they're hoping that he wants to go out and play and doesn't want to come back for what would be his technically sophomore year next year um, and play football and baseball. But this is a guy that scouts have have said, you know, if if you kind of squint, you can see Jacoby Ellsbury in this guy. Just that kind of, you know, left-hand bat with some speed and some power potential. So, you know, it's definitely going to be an uphill battle for him, but he does have star star capabilities. Right. I know that uh, the the guy who, you know, I would love to be, uh, a guy who has the personality to be a star, I don't know if he has the ability to be a star, Aaron loves Tony Kemp. I, I really like Tony Kemp. I can't see Tony Kemp being a big league star, but if he becomes a big league regular, he will be a star because of his personality and the way that he plays. I think Tony Kemp kind of wants to be a Dustin Pedroia kind of guy with less power, more speed. Maybe I'm thinking of him kind of like as a uh, Sean Figgins when Sean Figgins was good. I don't, I don't want to bring up Sean Figgins around Connor. No, <laughs> but uh, you know, physically, I think Sean Figgins is his comp. He's 5'6". There is electricity to Tony Kemp, but it's tough for scouts to make the leap because he's 5'6". He's not a blazing runner. He's a 60 runner, but he's not a burner. But I do feel like Tony Kemp is the kind of player who is better than his tools. I'm pretty confident in saying that he's that guy. Do I think he could be a big league regular? I think there's about a 20% chance that Tony Kemp's a big league regular. I'm not going to bank on it, but if I thought he could, if I were an area guy and I thought he would sign in the seventh round, I'd love to take that guy in the seventh round, send him out, and see him go be at the very least a guy who I'd be very confident that he would get a cup of coffee because I think he'd do everything he could to do that. I know he's played the outfield. I know he's come a long way defensively at second base in the year plus that he's been there, but I can't find a scout who will advocate for him. But our area, our, our favorite area scout, Aaron Fitt, <laughs> does. Aaron loves Tony Kemp with the passion of a thousand white hot suns. I mean, <laughs> I think Tony Kemp might be his favorite player. And I, I got to tell you, Aaron makes some convincing cases for him because there are some players who you take little pieces of this player, that player, and those guys are in the big leagues. And to me, the aptitude and the fact that he does have a carrying tool in his speed and that it is hard to find leadoff hitters, um, to me, makes I, I see a, a path to 
being a good big leaguer for Tony Kemp, even though he does not check any of those real profile boxes. So, um, last couple of things, guys. Uh, uh, Jim, this is, I think, a question from your area. How far do you see Bruce, well, uh, Brace Himmelgarn asks on Twitter, how far do you see Ryan Bolt falling? With a name like Himmelgarn, of course, he's going to ask about a player from Minnesota. Will it take above slot money if taken in rounds two to three to pry him away from Nebraska? Um, well, I'll say I don't have his exact son ability pinned down. I I don't think the meniscus injury that, that basically ended his season just as it began after a late start because of the weather is, is a huge concern. I mean, he is a plus runner. Um, he's a he's a four or five tool guy depending on how you feel about his power. But it's not like uh, this is Billy Hamilton and he tore an ACL and you're worried that he's going to come back with with less than blazing speed. You know, I, I'm not hearing first round buzz on Ryan Bolt. Uh, you know, I think he'd be more of a second-round pick. Uh, although I think, to be honest, that might have been true for for teams before his injury. You know, there, there's always one team that dislikes you more than everybody else, and you know, maybe somebody would have popped him in the first round. But I, I'm not hearing first-round buzz on him, and I was getting a mixed read on his signability. So without knowing for sure what it would take to sign him, I think there's a chance he might wind up in Nebraska. I think there's a, there's a pretty good chance. Although again, I mean, you go in the top 50 picks and get offered a million dollars, you know, that that could be hard to turn down too. Um, so. You know, I, I don't think, and I don't know if you guys have it much different, I, I don't think people uh, have pinned down a ton of sign abilities on guys yet, you know, on guys who aren't going to go in the first round. You know, what would it take to sign them? You know, will, will they sign the second? Will they sign the third? Right. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, there were mixed signals about his sign ability before, um, and, you know, he wasn't, he, it wasn't like he was a lock first-round pick for all 30 teams. He was definitely going going before the sandwich round began, before he got hurt. Um, and there is going to be at least a little doubt. So my, so my guess is he, he's probably a second-round pick if he's signable, and I, and I don't know if he's signable. Uh, Connor, we have a question also from BVHJs asks, what kind of power can Dominic Smith hit for? And I guess it's, part of this is that it's intriguing that we have a high school first baseman in our first-round mix, and it sounds like he's been in it from day one. I, I remember talking with you yeah. um, after I came back from – uh, Under Armour last year being like, wow, Dominic Smith, short guy as a first baseman, a high school first baseman, but you were like, yeah, but that guy can really hit. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. That's why he's been, you know, one of the premium high school guys from, you know. Jump street. From, from, yeah, from the very beginning. It's because he really can hit, and uh, he has present strength. He has present power. Uh, you know, Aaron Fitt does our Southern California coverage. We wrote him up as having, uh, you know, plus hit, hit ability and plus power. So I think it's a guy who could – hit 20 to 25 home runs one day in the big leagues. And plus defensive ability at first base helps yeah. to have that third tool right. to kind of push him into uh, to kind of push him into the first round. Uh, lastly, Jim, what, is there, has there been a, a favorite story that you could share, an, a G-rated or, or PG-rated story that you could share um, that's been your favorite draft story of, of, aught, uh, of 2013? Um, I guess one that jumps to mind, you know, fairly quickly is there's there's a school called Cedarville, Ohio, which uh, I don't think is on anybody's uh, list of of usual scouting uh, scouting destinations, and they've actually got identical twins on the team. Uh, one of whom is actually a more significant prospect than the other, a kid named uh, you know, it's the Ledbetter, Ledbetter brothers, and David Ledbetter is a better prospect than his identical twin brother Ryan. David's a, a right-handed pitcher up to 93 with sink, a good three-quarters breaking ball, has feel. You know, he's not 
he's not, I guess, what you know, one of these typical small college guys who's got a good arm, but you know, he's raw and the ball's all over the place. He, uh, real interesting guy. Um, also, uh, not that it's uh, it, it's a, a factor for the draft, but unusual. He's probably one of the few players in the draft who who's actually already married. Um, and his brother throw has similar stuff, but not as much polish. But uh, so that's probably my my my, my favorite uh, I favorite Mary story I've heard, uh, or favorite story I can relate on the air uh, so far uh, from the Midwest. I don't find the player being married very intriguing. Do you, Connor? You know, <laughs> in some ways I do find it intriguing, but it actually comes up a lot in my region because there's a lot of um, LDS. The, yeah, a lot a lot of the Mormon players are already married, and and I've had scouts tell me that. Uh, Sometimes they see it as a bad thing because sometimes the married guys quit. You know, they you want to spend more time with their family. Yeah, no, you're. Yeah. Do you see that? Do you have you? Did you hear that with this guy, Jim? Well, no, I don't think anybody's worried about him quitting. But you do hear that. I mean, oh. you, you all. I mean, you, you'll hear sometimes that like they're more likely to quit, or uh, you know, for whatever. It's weird how scouting works. But and I don't think anybody just writes guys off. But sometimes a married guy. Uh, maybe he's lost a little bit of his fire. You know, I don't know. I mean, maybe single guys are more competitive than married guys, or or something. But yeah, it's. I agree with Connor. It, it, it doesn't. I don't have too many. It doesn't come up too often in the Midwest. But a lot of times when you hear, oh, that guy's married, you know, it, it, it's in a negative context. Not the case with David Ledbetter, and and that was just kind of the icing on the on the top of the Sunday there for you, John. I, I thought the identical twin stuff was a, and this tiny school that's never had anybody drafted was a. It was the intriguing part of that one. I like that, but I like uh, Connor. What's your what's your favorite story of the draft this year? Because mine are all Mississippi based. I've pretty much emptied mine already. Go ahead. I can't. Well, I am. I, I, I am obviously my favorite story of the draft has been that uh, if you go back and you search our website for Hunter Renfro, you get uh, me not having the guts to pick him to be a college player of the year, and I wish I had. But I did think he would be really good this year, and I'm. I'm excited that he has had a good year just because uh, I think it was a perfect storm. But I think it, the contrast between him and Jacoby Jones is fascinating. And they were both out of the same Mississippi high school class. And Jacoby Jones was famous when he was a freshman and went to showcase after showcase after showcase and was uh, turned down a lot of money, I think, out of high school with a Boris Corporation client um, and uh, has had a very modest career at LSU, you know, everyone says, oh, he was great on the Cape. Yeah, he hit 220. He won the home run derby, but he hit 220 with a ton of strikeouts. And uh, now he has this left-hand injury, um, you know, which actually has opened up uh, potential infield time for Mason Katz off of first base, which is also interesting, although I don't think Mason Katz can really play second. Um, I do have scouts who are curious about whether Mason Katz can play third or maybe second and kind of be like a super utility uh, guy, because he's a five foot eleven college first baseman, but to me the contrast between Renfro, the country guy from Mississippi, who was the pop up guy and the unknown in high school, and the famous guy in Jacoby Jones, is obviously the, that's the story that kind of is consuming me. And the other one that I think will be fascinating to watch will be Kyle Serrano, uh, well known uh, on the showcase circuit, pitched for USA national team. Um, you know, is a six two, hundred ninety pound, like an average bodied high school right-hander with a dad who's a college coach on a team that did not make the SEC tournament where everybody gets a trophy. And 12 of the 14 teams in the league make it, and they are one of the two teams that did make it. So I think that even though his dad just got to Tennessee, I think his dad's getting on the hot seat, not making the conference tournament, and his dad needs pitching. And, um, you know, they, how can his – it's going to be tough 
to watch the signability of whether Kyle Serrano, who I think is a consensus first-round pick, if he comes to Tennessee to pitch for his dad or if he goes out in the first round. So that's going to be a fascinating story to watch. That hasn't been my favorite story, but that's going to be one of the more interesting storylines to watch, Connor. Yeah. Looking through my guys, I guess, you know, a few of my more interesting stories. I don't have any specific, you know, stories from, from scouts, but just storylines. I, mean, I, I have some that I can't share. <laughs> so. <laughs> the, uh, the Peterson brothers, I mean, that's pretty awesome. That that's a good one. Those guys are going to go real high in the draft. Um, Andrew Church at Basic High School, you know, transferred schools, moved into an, his own apartment to try and pitch for this other school, and uh, was ruled ineligible at first, and is, is back now. That's that's interesting. We've written about that. And then there's Andrew Dunlap down in Texas, another guy that we've written about. Uh, a really <laughs> fascinating story, just because it's so rare. It's, that's the thing. It's a really unique story, and probably not for even a good reason, Connor. Yeah, I mean, it's just a little weird. I mean, this is a guy who should have graduated from high school last year, decided not to fin- not to take one of his classes he was supposed to take to graduate so that he could be basically a senior again this year. Um, you know, when I was interviewing him, I jokingly called him the high school version of Van Wilder, because yeah. that's basically he, he just chose not to graduate high school, and now he went from being a catcher last year to being a pitcher this year. So he's he's raw on the mound, but he has a lot of arm strength. He's been up to 96 miles an hour. Uh, just needs to throw more strikes and and you know learn some of the things that go along with pitching. But the really crazy thing about it to me, Connor, is that Texas has a rich history of junior college pitchers who are kind of like Andrew Dunlap, guys who are just all arm strength, throw a lot, you know, get a chance because it's junior college. Maybe they pitch the midweek games. Scouts know to look for them. So there's a whole culture of junior college that he could have taken advantage of there, and he didn't. And it, uh, you know, we had to leave Jim. Uh, Jim had got another phone call and had to had to leave this podcast. But it sounds like that almost has worked against Andrew Dunlap. Well, not almost. That has worked against Andrew yeah. Dunlap because scouts have seen stories like Andrew Dunlap before, but they want those guys to go play in junior college and and pitch against actual competition. And instead, they've seen him in these workouts. They've seen him in the Texas baseball rants that Ron Wolforth runs. You know, he's go he's gone to pitch in California at this in the the club league. The AB that ABD started. Yeah. Um, I've had uh, people out there reporting to me he's touched 97 out there, but that's not what scouts want to see, especially area scouts in Texas. And the other on top of this, he's a he at least has book smarts. He's committed to Rice. Yeah. So this yeah. guy had. Other app opportunities or other venues in which he could pursue being uh, converting from catching to pitching and pursuing get, being recruited by bigger name schools, but he didn't pursue any of the traditional routes, and it seems like that's working against him. Yeah, I think it is. I think you know sometimes you know scouts just don't like players going against the grain. Right. Yeah. Another guy who's going against the grain, a uh, good football term, is Joey Matarano. Yeah. And it's a good year in the state of Idaho. We don't usually have, uh, there's not a lot of Idaho prospects from year to year. Right. And, uh, so, but we saw last summer on the showcase circuit, both Mason Smith and Joey Matarano were guys who hit as, as hitters, as high school hitters, or toward the top of the class. Mason Smith is certainly committed to baseball, it sounds like, but yeah. Joey Matarano is waffling. So why don't you go into that story a little yeah, bit? Yeah, another one of my favorite just you know, stories from this spring in that he's committed to Boise State for football and they don't have a baseball team. Right. So it's, it's not the traditional, uh, like, you know, Cole Stewart or something like that where the kid's committed to a school and could play both sports there. This guy's only committed to Boise State for football and, you know, he's going to have a, a tough decision. You know, he came out in the papers a little while ago saying he wants to go play football only. But, I, you know, to me, I think that's just maybe 
a ploy to, to re- elevate his stock a little bit. But the thing that jumps out for him is just, uh, you know, he, he's been putting on BP sessions that have been almost legendary yeah. out there. Scouts have been, you know, using names like Mike Stanton or, you know, Giancarlo Stanton and Bryce Harper when they talk about these BP sessions he has. So That's AD Power, that's yeah. what they're talking about. So, And you can see his physicality. And his, he, uh, you know, I only got to see him one time. Hashtag not a scout. His physicality and athleticism. He plays there. shortstop for his high school team. And how big is he? He's like 240 pounds. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so. I mean, it sounds it sounds like he's kind of tripping over himself at shortstop, but you know, and not even a third base prospect at the pro level. It sounds like he's going to have to move to left field or first base. But you know, I wrote in in our scouting report, I wrote he could be like Mark Trumbo. Yeah. Nice. That's a good so, comp. That's a yeah. big. That's a big dude who's tripping over himself at third base. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. that didn't stop the Angels. So, and uh, JJ Cooper has gotten that great email we got. Uh, we were talking with scouts about developing about the right right profile, and uh, one of these scouts made a great point. I think to JJ, which is, you you know, we we give hitters. We always give hitter the Sean Burroughs profile, the guy who has the good hitting profile, and we're waiting for the power to develop. That you know, scouts give those guys all the time in the world. But teams don't seem to give the guys who have 80 power and 40 hit the bats or the development time to see if that hit tool can just develop to be a 50. Yeah, and because and if it does, you're talking about an average hitter with huge power. You're talking about 260 with 35 home runs. That is valuable. That's Mark Trumbo. Sure. And, and the other the other point that he brought up that was the power arms. You know, these right. guys who throw you know 98 miles an hour and, and can't throw strikes they get every chance as well they get every chance like andrew dunlap will get a chance in this draft and uh we hope you gave this podcast a chance you know we went a little long and, and it's not even it's a 40 or 45 draft class connor and we went like an hour and whatever we went so um thank jim callis for his time uh thanks obviously to connor glassy for his time it's a very busy time of year for all of us we've all guys to get back to our scouting reports to write so we hope you have time to read all those reports going out to BaseballAmerica.com. The BA500 comes out Friday. For Connor and Jim, I'm John. We'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody.